wonder, there are two types of people here this morning, and I wonder which one are you? Luke 18, a Pharisee and a tax collector went to the temple. The temple was just the permanent tabernacle. And two men went up into the temple to pray, a Pharisee and the other, a tax collector. And as they went, the, the Pharisee, it was a religious person, someone who knew the law really well, he went and said, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I pay my tithe, I, I do all of these things, I'm not like an extortioner, an adulterer, I'm not unjust. And I fast twice a week and I give all my tithes. So there's two kinds of people here. And they're separated into two categories. The first category is someone who said, I don't need God, but God needs me. So some people say, there is no God. Why would I worship him? Other people here, probably, maybe some of us, say, I don't need God. God needs me and all the good stuff I do. And then there's another kind of person, like the tax collector, standing far off. He wouldn't even lift up his head to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus tells us one of these men went down justified. I wonder, which kind of person are you? The story of Exodus is the story of a true God delivering his chosen people out of Egypt so that they would worship him. He delivered them for worship. They went from misery and slavery to deliverance through the Red Sea and onto dry land. And now, God has called them to gratitude. In one sense, the story of Exodus is the story of the redeemed. And for gratitude to get its full expression, the redeemed must be with their redeemer. There could be no real love without dwelling together. It would, it would be like trying to live your married life on Zoom, having a marriage ceremony on Zoom, and then trying to live together on Zoom. You would never experience all that marriage is supposed to be without being together or dwelling together. And we are not different from God in that way. God wants to be with his people. I mean, I love FaceTiming with my parents, but I love it more when they come and visit for a month in July. God wants to be with his people. And so Exodus 25, 8, God says this through Moses, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So friends, this next section of Exodus that we're gonna be in, Exodus 25 and Exodus 37 is, is just a, a recapitulation <laughs> It retells Exodus 25, uh, but it just says, basically, this is what they did. They did exactly what God told them to do, and God wanted to dwell with his people. So it shows, Exodus 25 and 37, it shows us through the description of the tabernacle and its furniture how God was going to dwell with his people. God gives Moses a full description of how the people are to worship him. And it helps them to fulfill the first two commandments, to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and how to worship him. How are they supposed to worship? They were supposed to worship him in a certain way, and God gave that right to them. 
It wasn't left up to them to decide how to worship God. God told them and had it written down because what he was giving them was a little taste of heaven on earth, little, little shadows of heaven on earth. What, what were we made for? What were Adam and Eve made for? To walk with God, to talk with God, to worship God in the garden. Got kicked out of the garden and now God in his redeeming love is starting to give us shadows that he's gonna return us to Eden, but better than Eden, little shadows of heaven on earth. And the tabernacle is where God is gonna dwell with his people, giving them little shadows of what it's gonna be like one day with his people, with his redeemed. The first thing he's going to do for them is to let them participate in the, in the building of his dwelling place. He asked them to give contributions as their heart is moved. And so in Exodus 25, it says, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, Tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breastplate. And let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their presence, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. This is God's word. So, it's really easy to get lost in the detail or just be like, whatever, the detail, uh, is done. I'm just going to skip over it. Uh, but what we should get from the details of this passage is that God has a specific way he wants to be worshipped, and he demands to be worshipped that way. But he does it because he wants to dwell with his people. The people must come and worship him in the way he is commanded, in the way he demands. And in his providence, he tells them, you as your heart is moved, I want you to contribute to the place where I'm going to dwell. You're going to contribute to the building of it with the, with the pieces of the tent, with the gold, with all of the things that's going to make up the, the tabernacle, the tent, and the Holy of Holies, and all the furniture in it. He asked them to give contributions. Where did they get these contributions? Well, the people had received it from the farewell gifts from the Egyptians on their way out of Egypt. Do you remember? God said, the Egyptians are going to give you everything you need. They're going to pile on the gifts. So as, as you go out, you're going to go out in abundance. And these gifts were out of the abundance of God's providential grace. Not, not out of the kindness of the Egyptians' hearts, necessarily. I think they were like, please go, and here you go. Whatever helps you get out faster. You guys need some stuff. Here you go. Go. But they were, out of the God, they were out of God's treasures of kindnesses to them, undeserved. God demanded that they worship him a certain way. And before he ever told them what to give, he provided those gifts through his sovereign generosity. Before he ever said, hey, give me an offering for the, the tabernacle, he provided for them through the Egyptians, and God always does this. The things he demands of you, he provides for you. So he says, by grace have you been saved through faith, and it's not of yourself, it's the gift of God. 
Both the grace and the faith are gifts from God. And he provides them for us, even in our salvation. But haven't you seen that in your life? God has provided for you everything you need. And you wonder, in times of lack, in times of want, in times of anxiety, you wonder, God, are you going to provide everything you need? Everything I need, will you provide it for me? And we can see in his work of salvation and his work with his people of old, he does exactly that. The things he demands of you, he provides for you. So that they might make a sanctuary for him, so he could dwell with his people. These are shadows of heaven on earth. The sanctuary, it's kind of an old word, right, that you use. And you maybe thought it was like invented in the 1950s or it's just your grandparents or parents that used the word, hey, come into the sanctuary, we're gonna start worship. But sanctuary was a word used way, you know, way back in the Bible. It's sort of an old word that would, you know, would call people, we would, we would call a worship space or, God forbid, an auditorium. Uh, uh, the word sanctuary speaks of a sacred space. And maybe it's good that we don't call this a, a sacred space. Maybe it is. But uh, when someone calls someone a something a sanctuary, it is referred to when God entered a time where God entered into human space on earth and made it sacred. Like when he called out to Moses and called him from the burning bush and he said, do you remember what he told Moses? Take off your feet for the place you're standing is what? Holy ground. It's a sacred space where God localizes his presence. Now we know that God is everywhere, right? The Bible teaches us that God is omnipresent. There isn't one space on this whole universe and this uh, whole system of planets where God is not. He's everywhere at once. And yet, there is something sacred when God steps into space and time to save his people, to dwell with his people. This is a place where his means of grace are at work among his people. This is why coming together on Sunday is, is so important. It's, it's God's means of grace, God's people of grace gathering together to show off his grace as one people. It's a beautiful time together. It's, it's showing off the holiness and goodness and kindness and justice of God. The book of John opens up with this phrase, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then you skip down to verse 14, it says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the word tented or tabernacled. He dwelt or tented or tab literally tabernacled among his people, among his creation. God made his presence dwell in the person of Jesus Christ because he desired to be with his people, to redeem them. Even the places Jesus lived and walked were called holy. They call it the holy land now, not because there's something special about that place, but it's because where God let his presence dwell in the person of Jesus Christ. It was sacred because God showed up in time and space. And he didn't just show up to go on vacation with his people. He showed up to display his character and work. And in an intentionally imperfect way, that is what the furniture of the tabernacle does. It displays God's character and work. 
And so the rest of the sermon, I, I hope none of you has a heart attack. I'm glad there's no older people in here. But we're going to have some slides, that some, some representations of this thing. And so uh, the first slide is going to show us the, what the tabernacle was. Um, and these, remember, these were shadows cast by someone, someone greater, something greater. Someone greater is Jesus, something greater than the new covenant. And all the furniture in the tabernacle or tent was pointing to that one person, Jesus Christ. And the difference, just the difference between the tabernacle uh, and the temple is the tabernacle was, uh, it was, was basically a portable temple. It was a tent. It was, they could pick it up, put it together, and move it, and then set it up again. The temple was more permanent once they got in the promised land. It wasn't portable anymore. It was in one place. So this tabernacle was broken up into three areas. The tabernacle is, is a place where God says he's going to let his presence dwell. And, and you can see, you see where the smoke is at the altar and the, the far gate is, at, is the eastern entrance. Uh, uh, it's facing the east. And so people would, would come in from the eastern entrance and they would, they would they would come in and the, the priest would sacrifice on, on the altar. And, and then once they sacrificed on the altar, they'd go to the, the laver and they would, they would wash up from the sacrifice. And, and um, once a priest did all that, he would enter into that next section, that, that the tent within the tent is called the holy place. And, and that's where the, the table of the showbread and the golden lampstand and the altar of incense are. And so the priests would go, could go in there and do, they do their ministry and they would make sure the lamp was burning and they'd make sure there was bread on the table and the, the altar of incense. You can go back again, sorry. Um, and then the, the third space was called the holiest place, the inner sanctum, and it's closest to us. It's where the Ark of the Covenant would be. And in the inner sanctum, only the high priest was able to go. And only once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, after they he made a sacrifice for himself and the people. And when he went into the Holy of Holies, the first piece of furniture they would see, and the first piece of furniture God instructed Moses to build was called the Ark of the Covenant. And in verse 10, it says, They shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half, be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The pole shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark of the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold and of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherub on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherub be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. 
There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the cherubim that are at the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So in the tabernacle, God has this most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant. And maybe some of your minds go to, to um, Indiana Jones. And if they hadn't, they do now. But the Ark of the Covenant was not exactly like that. It wasn't, it, it wasn't that, nor was it like Noah's Ark. It was, a, it was a box made of acacia wood. And then it was, it was covered in gold. And it had a, a lid of pure gold. It was this one piece of gold that they fashioned the lid and they put it over it. And, and out of the gold, they also fashioned cherubim that would, that would look and cover the mercy seat or the atonement cover. And on the lid there were these representations of these angels. And friends, these angels, the last time in the biblical storyline we heard about the angels, uh, these cherubim were the same kinds of angels that guarded the entrance to the Garden of Eden. When mankind, when Adam and Eve got kicked out of the Garden of Eden for their sin, God put cherubim in front of the garden, blocked the entrance. And now people are, are east of Eden. They're kicked out of Eden, and, and, and they're not able to go back lest they eat of the tree of life. And now the cherubim guard the presence of God. You'll notice that the entrance is, is towards the east, where the people would have been, east of Eden, east of God. And now they're coming back into God's presence, and they can only come back through bloodshed. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And in, inside the holiest place where God's presence dwelled, there was the ark. And Moses was told to put the testimony, the law, inside the ark, inside the, the ark of the testimony or the ark of the covenant. And there it was, the law, crying out for condemnation of the people. There it was, and it would soon be broken in two. But God didn't leave it that way. He made a lid, an atonement lid, a mercy seat to cover it so that when it was covered, God would dwell between the cherubim above the mercy seat, looking down on the law. And on the day of atonement, once a year, the high priest would go in, slay the goat, and put blood on the mercy seat, so that as God dwelt above the mercy seat, he would see the blood and not the broken law, and he would forgive. This is the Ark of the Covenant. This is where God chose to dwell. The Holy of Holies, the holiest place. God chose to dwell with his people. He wanted to dwell with his people, and the only way he could dwell with his people if there was going to be mercy. So God starts with the holiest place of all, and then he moves out into the holy, back into the holy place, and he, he tells Moses about the next two items of furniture. The, the table of the showbread. It's the, uh, the table of the bread of the presence in Exodus 25, 23 through 30. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, two cubits its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. 
You shall make a rim around the handbreadth wide and a molding of gold around the rim. You shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the tables. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and its dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. You set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. And God was choosing to dwell with his people and the thing he wants when he dwells with his people is to have a meal with them. But the bread is not for God. You've probably seen, you know, in other cultures, they would bring food to the gods and make an offering to the gods. But this bread was for God's presence, was for the priests. And it was 12 loaves. It was two stacks of six. And it was for the the 12 tribes of Israel, just to, to remind them that God would provide for them. And as the priest ministered, he, he was able to eat the bread. And, and the 12 loaves, as he ministered for God and for the, to God, for the people, he would be able to, to have sustenance and, and, and food. It symbolized the priest's work on behalf of God's people. The priest mediated the presence of God for the people of God. He wanted to dwell with them. He desired to be with them. So he provided for them bread, food they needed to dwell with him. And he asked the mediator to to regularly change out the bread on the table, reminding them that the one who rained down bread from heaven now invites them into his very presence and desires to have a meal with them. This is a shadow of heaven on earth. Uh, A return to Eden, in a way, as God provides food for his people and and talks and walks with them. It's a shadow of greater things to come. And though we're not having the Lord's table this morning, it points us to the Lord's table as a a sort of another pointer into the, the greater marriage supper of the Lamb, the greater table to come when we're in heaven to be with Jesus. All along, every time we celebrate the Lord's table, we should be remembering that this too is a shadow of something greater. This too reminds us that we will dwell in God's presence forever and ever and feast like we've never feasted before. We will feast in the house of Zion. These are shadows of heaven on earth and God chooses to dwell with his people through the table, the bread of the presence eternally. And the last piece of furniture is, is the lampstand. And the golden lampstand was put in the holy place to give light. It says, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made a hammered work. Its base, its stems, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, and three branches of the lampstand of, out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower, and on the branch, other branch, so for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with, its, with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of, the, of a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, 
and the lamp shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold, and it shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern of which is being shown you on the mountain. This is God's word. Now, it's not represented well in, in the picture, but this was a beautiful piece of furniture. And the lampstand, the center lampstand, would have been the highest. And, and, and some commentators see that, that center lampstand as, as representing Jesus. Uh, he, he is the one who all the other lamps are connected to. And if you remember in the book of Revelation, the, Jesus dwells in the middle of the lampstands. He, he, is, he, he is there dwelling with them. And, and the, all, all lampstands, all churches, all pastors, all, all Christians depend on the center lamp the light of the world. Israel was supposed to be the light to the nations. And the church is the light of the world, Jesus says. You are the light of the world, Jesus says in Matthew 5. But they could not give light until God turned the lights on for them. And it wasn't, you know, we, we think of lampstands as like having candles in them, uh, which um, seems to me to be a really great business model you buy candles and you can never stop buying candles, right? <laughs> they smell good, uh, they look good, and, and they're, you have to replenish them. What, what a great way. It seems like someone should start a business on that. But this, was, this wasn't a candle, this was oil. They would put oil into it, and the priest was in charge of, uh, of refueling it all the time. And many scholars see this as, the, as pointing to the Holy Spirit who lights up the believer and the churches as, and as it's filled and, and as churches and Christians have their connection to the Holy Spirit, they're able to, to send their light out to the world. And the priest has to replace oil to keep the lamp burning. Now friends, all of this is just shadows of heaven on earth, shadows of things to come like Mackenzie read for us. And the, the priest himself was just a shadow of a greater priest, a better priest, a high priest. God determined to dwell with his people, led him to the preparation to dwell with them. But these were only shadows of heaven on earth. And we've, I've used this image before, but you, you know, when, when a soldier comes home from war to surprise his loved ones and, and, and they come behind them and maybe the, the sun is casting the shadow of that soldier on the ground, as soon as the loved one sees the person, they don't turn and hug the shadow. They turn and hug the reality. And God doesn't want us to hug the shadow. He doesn't want us to get caught up in all, all of the furniture and like we should then have all this furniture here. No, Jesus is the reality. And we get to worship him in spirit and in truth. We have the greater reality, this side of the cross. Jesus said that, you know, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That, that word lit up the world. In John 8, the question was in John 7, could this man be the Christ? And in John 8, 12, Jesus answered that question. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The way back from darkness of sin is through the light of life. It is through Jesus Christ. It is through the true lampstand, the, the, the one who lights up the whole world and calls us the light of the world. The way back to the tree of life and the garden 
of Eden is through Christ, who hung on the tree of death, turning into a tree of life. Dear friend, if, if you have not turned to him, I encourage, if you've not repented of your sins, if you've not asked for forgiveness of your sins and turned to Jesus, turn to him today, even now. You can talk to the person you came with or talk to me. I would love to talk to you about what all of that means. He turns the lights on. He's the light of the world. And in the table, God promised to provide for his people in the wilderness. The table was a visible reminder to his people that he would do that through the miracle of bread from heaven or through the ordinary means of priests cooking the bread and replacing it regularly. These were shadows of heaven on earth, and the Lord's table is just a a shadow of a, a greater meal to come. Friends, as we go back to the ark and we finish this, the presence of God was, was hidden in the Holy of Holies as he dwelt above the ark. The, there was a veil that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest, like I said, could go in there, and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. But because of atonement, because, because a, someone had to die in the place of another one, shed their blood, there could be a way back to God. The mercy seat has been placed over the broken law. And the blood of Christ has been shed, has become the mercy seat. In the New Testament, Paul describes what this mercy seat is in, in Romans chapter 3. He says in, in verses, verse 23, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, every one of us, and anyone who turns to Christ are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation. That word hilasterion, that word propitiation is hilasterion. In the Greek, in the, the, the Greek, uh, in the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word for mercy seat is hilasterion, or propitiation. And Paul is saying that uh, this, this propitiation, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are redeemed through him, God put forward as a propitiation, a mercy seat, a hilasterion. He, he did this so he could dwell with his people forevermore. And friends, in, in Luke 18, to return to the story that we started with, the Pharisee comes in and puts all of his gifts, all of his offering out there and says, God, receive me. The tax collector says, I have nothing to offer you. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I claim. The Pharisee stood up and prayed and gave his resume. The tax collector stood afar off He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be a hilasterion. God, be merciful to me. Be a propitiation for me. Be a mercy seat for me. Friends, they were standing at the temple. They both came to the temple to pray. They both knew that there, in the Holy of Holies, was the Ark of the Covenant, with the atonement lid on top of it, the mercy seat on top of it, the hilasterion propitiation. 
one of them knew how to get into that holy of holies. Crying out for mercy. God, will you be merciful to me, a sinner? Be a propitiation, a, a mercy seat to me. And friends, all of these, all of these pieces of furniture, the tabernacle itself, the stories, they're all, they're all imperfect pointers to Jesus. God set up an imperfect covenant to point to a better covenant, a newer covenant, where Jesus Christ, the, the, the initiator and fulfiller of that covenant, would come and fulfill everything that needed to be. So maybe you're on the outside of Christianity looking in. You need to be like the tax collector. Be a mercy seat to me. Or maybe you're, you're in here and you've come to church thinking that you would give your gifts back to God and he would somehow receive you. The ark tells us, the mercy seat tells us, the stories tell us, they won't. He, you must, God must be merciful to me, a sinner. He must be a, a mercy seat to us. Friends, God longs to dwell with his people. He longs to be worshipped the way he created you to worship him. And then he provides everything you need to do that. Won't you turn to him in faith and in joy today? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you take this imperfect sermon and remind us of the things that are yet to come. As we dwell together as your people and you actually dwell among us by your Holy Spirit, would you help us stir one another up to love and good works? As we face the anxieties of the week to come, be merciful to us. Be merciful to we sinners. Be kind to us. Be a mercy seat to us. We, we know that you dwell with us as your people and, and you, you dwell with us here, especially as we worship you, but you also dwell with us as we go. As we go from this place, we pray that your word would be a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. Your Holy Spirit would remind us that, that you have provided for us a table even in the presence of our enemies, even the valley of the shadow of death, that you will never leave us or forsake us. So let these shadows remind us of the reality and let us re embrace the reality of Jesus. Friends, I give you a moment to let God in